0: What a great morning, so glad to see so many folks here, and there's a lot to celebrate, Uh, and we're going to do that this morning for sure. Um, As we get started, I want you to think back to some of the things you did when you were a kid. Can you do that for just a minute? For example, um, I can remember when I was four or five years old, and I drove a tractor for the first time. I remember very clearly, it was a John Deere tractor on a farm in McGargle, Texas, And I don't mean to brag, but uh, I think you'd be pretty impressed with how straight the rows were that I plowed that day. And then sometime later, I was probably eight or nine, I remember lifting a 50-pound sack of concrete. I did that as I built onto the house that we lived in on 62nd Street here in Lubbock, Texas. Actually, as I think back to those things, I I really didn't do any of them. It was actually... (laughs) My dad, I was too young to reach the pedals at four or five years old, but I remember distinctly him telling me, son, look at you, you're driving this tractor all by yourself. And I remember when I lifted that sack of concrete, he told me, son, great job. You're doing most of the work. I'm barely doing anything. Right. And then when he told people about the house that we built onto, he would always tell them that we did it together. But all along, it was my dad who was doing all the work. I, as a kid, thought that I was actually doing those things, but it was my dad who was doing the work, and he just happened to give me the credit. This morning, we're going to look at a passage in Colossians where Paul will use a phrase repeated in some version in every single verse with the exception of one that I believe he intends to use to communicate a similar message. Paul describes, as we just sang, who we are in Christ. He talks about what we did with Christ and through Christ. And each time, Paul is describing something that Jesus accomplished that he then credits to you and I through faith. He explains how the fullness of Christ is what makes us complete. How His death resurrection. Death, burial, and resurrection is actually our death, burial, and resurrection. How he paid a debt for the forgiveness of our sins. How his victory gives us freedom from slaves and from sin's enslaving power. In other words, Jesus did for us what we could not possibly have done on our own. But then he turns around and gives us the credit For what he accomplished when we put our faith and trust in him. That's an amazing transaction. And I know that most of you are here this morning not to hear me. (laughs) Because you're here to see the baptisms. But I want you to understand that what you will see in the imagery of a baptism. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is seen clearly in our passage this morning. And I want to make sure you get all of it. So before we look at that together let's. Go to the Lord in prayer. God, I do pray for our time, and I pray that we uh, really can see, without distraction of things to come, what it is that you have to say about what you have done. Help us to really grasp the magnitude of what you have accomplished. And then what you, in turn, credit to us when we put our faith and trust in you. This is a beautiful story, a gospel story, a miraculous story. May we not miss its impact in our life this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you're not already there, turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And if you would, begin reading with me in uh, verse 9. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, For in him. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is head over all rule and authority. And in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised up with him through faith, in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us. and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. I wanted to go back and actually look at a couple of verses we talked about in our passage last week in in verses 9 and 10, because I believe they set the the stage for all that that follows in in Paul's letter. He goes on, as we talked about last week in verse 9, to tell us that, that Jesus is complete lacking in nothing. He says, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We talked about that passage in in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 that said that that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature. And Paul's already said in Colossians chapter 1 verse 19, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Paul, over and over again, wants to make sure that we understand that when we see Jesus, we see God. Because Jesus is God. And yet, God is loving. And is unwilling to remain separated from the humanity that He created. And so as John puts it in his Gospel, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Max Lucado paraphrases that and says that that Jesus is God with skin on. And John goes on to say that Jesus was full of grace and truth, and he lived the life so that we could see with our eyes and hear with our ears who God is and and what he does and what his heart is for mankind. John tells us that Jesus came so that he could explain the heart of God to the heart of man. Jesus is complete. Fully God. Lacking in nothing. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, you are made complete when you are found in Him. He says, and in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. And Paul makes a statement of truth when he says that you are complete in Him. And then he makes a a statement of authority to back up that statement of truth when he says that Jesus is head over all and rule and authority. Jesus, therefore, has the power to fulfill the promise that he has made so that you can be complete in him. It is important to see those two together because we want to make sure that we are not believing in an empty promise, that Jesus has the power to accomplish what he said would be true because we make empty promises all the time. I could stand up here and say, listen, here's what I want to do. I, Bruce, I think you're a good guy, so this is what I want to do. I want to, I want to sell everything I have and, and all my possessions, and I'm going to give it all to you so that you can be a millionaire. Okay? I could actually sell all my possessions. I could give it to Bruce, but he's not going to be anywhere close to a millionaire. <laughs> because I simply do not have those kinds of resources. Right. We we have a presidential election coming up. OK. And and, and so I, I might come up to somebody and say, listen, Glenn, I really like you and I think you'd make a good president. <laughs> so here's what I'm going to do next president election. I'm going to make sure that you're the man that you get appointed to be president. That's an empty promise <laughs> because I do not have the authority to carry out that kind of a promise. But let me tell you something. Jesus Christ does not have those same limitations. He has the authority and the resources to fulfill what He says is true. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In Him, all things hold together. That is who He is. And because of His reign, the rule and authority that He possesses, there is no power that exists in heaven or in earth that can prevent Him from accomplishing what He says is true. That's who Jesus is. Now, keep in mind that Paul is writing this letter we've already described to to people who have believed in Christ. They are people of sincere faith in Christ and a love for all the saints, right? And he wants them to know that, that you are complete in Christ. And he goes on to describe how that is made possible. And when he does... He, he tells them what, what Jesus did that accomplished what is now credited to them. And he uses two very familiar images, images to, for the audience that he was speaking to. He, he talks about circumcision and he talks about baptism. Now, circumcision for the Jews was obviously very familiar. For hundreds of years, this was an important facet of their culture because they looked back at the time when God himself established circumcision as the sign of a covenant between them and him as a special people set apart for his purposes that sign is what set them apart baptism would have been understood by every single jew and gentile believer who read this letter because without exception i assure you all of them had been baptized because of their faith in jesus christ they also knew that this too was a symbol that set them apart as followers of Jesus Christ. Paul uses these two very well-known experiences for his audience to help them understand some spiritual truths of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He goes on in verse 11 and says, And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made Without hands. That's an important qualification here because Paul wants them to understand that that external changes do not guarantee a change in one's heart. We all know that people can look really good on the outside. But as Jesus describes the Pharisees, they could be full of dead man's bones. Paul even told the Romans when he wrote to them, he says, "...for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel." He explained what he meant earlier in the letter in chapter 2, verse 29, when he says that, that a true Jew is one inwardly because of the circumcision of their heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul is trying to help us understand that it is by the heart that one believes and is declared righteous. It's by faith, not by human hands, not by good deeds, not by human efforts. And this heart change is what then elicits a life change. It's what happens on the inside that then produces fruit that is visible on the outside. It must be a circumcision of the heart, not one with human hands. Circumcision was a well-known procedure to those Jewish and Gentile believers. They knew that it was a very painful, a bloody procedure. And I think Paul uses that imagery purposefully so that they could capture the image as he applies it to the crucifixion of Christ. Also, a very bloody and painful procedure. He wants them to know that it is Christ's death that separated them from their sinful nature when they put their faith and trust in Him. There's a very parallel passage of what Paul is saying here in Colossians with what he wrote to to the Romans. And I want us to look at these together. So keep your finger in Colossians and flip over to uh, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. If you would, read with me beginning in verse 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Paul says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, that our body of sin, or as he says in Colossians, our body of flesh might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Paul wants us to understand that, that our sinful nature was cut away, literally separated from us and cast to the side. That is the, the circumcision of the heart. It's what he goes on and tells, describes to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 24, when he says, Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh and put to death those controlling desires and passions that once enslaved them. His death becomes our death as his crucifixion puts to death the enslaving power of sin in our life. And our heart must be circumcised in order to be transformed in our life. He goes on to to talk about baptism. Go back to Colossians chapter 2 verse 12. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Said we were buried with him in baptism. You see, burial is what proves death. You don't bury somebody who's alive. You bury dead people. Back over in Romans chapter 6, he says something very similar. He says in verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And Paul uses that, that phrase, in order that. We must be buried into His death. In order that we might be raised up to a newness of life. That, that burial must precede the resurrection. We cannot be resurrected to a new life until the old life is crucified. And put into the tomb. And then, then we are raised with Him in faith. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. And I want you to understand that 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 resurrected life that He's speaking of, that that begins right now. Let me show you what I mean. Look over at Romans chapter 6 verse 8. Romans chapter 6 verse 8. It says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And now here's the command to you and I. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The resurrected life begins right now. Old things have been put away. New things have come. This morning, as we've already mentioned, many of you are here because of baptisms. And one of the things that I want you to understand when you see what happens this morning is that it is no accident that there were two things that were instituted by Jesus Christ as ordinances for the church that He intended for us to do routinely. The first is communion, where we celebrate and understand and remind the sacrifice sacrifice that Jesus made through the blood and the, the bread representing His body. It's a gospel story. But when we go and we celebrate baptism, it's the same story. It's a gospel story you're going to hear people give a testimony of their faith in Christ and in their own way, what they're telling you is what Paul wrote to the Galatians when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. That's why they get up to share with you their testimony. That's the story they're telling you in their own words. And then they're going to step back. And we're going to tell them that we're going to baptize them. We're going to put them underwater. All the way underwater. And that represents that burial where the old self is put to death. Because when we raise them up, that symbolizes the new life of having been raised up with Christ. They are a new creation Old things have gone. New things have come. When you watch that happen this morning, you are seeing with your eyes a picture that Christ instituted that represents the gospel message. Salvation in Christ alone. And I want you to think about a couple of things when you see what happens this morning. The first one is that I hope you see as each testimony is given how big our God is. I think I'll speak for myself many times. God gets really small when I see him only from my perspective. I live in a little world. But when I see God work in your life and in your life and in your life and in your life and in in every person's life, God gets bigger and bigger as he deserves. Because that's who he is. And so with each story of redemption, you need to know that we serve a big God who is even now at work redeeming redeeming the lives of those he has come to save. But I also want you to know that, kind of like we talk about with baby dedications, this is not just about them up there. This is about you out here as well. Because when those people make that profession of faith, and they say, I have chosen to follow Christ, then there should be a response from you as a people of God that says, then hearing that, I promise to stand with you. I promise to pray for you. I promise to encourage you. And when I see you stray away from what you said you believed to be true, I'm going to encourage you to come back and stay the course. They are making a commitment and taking a step of obedience in the act of baptism, but you are not exempt because you are making a commitment as well to stand with them in the faith that they are professing. We need to understand that what we are declaring this morning is that By faith in Christ. His death on the cross is what crucifies my sinful nature. And my old life is buried with Him in the tomb. It is dead. And His resurrection power that raised Him from the dead is what raises me. It's the same resurrection power, the Scripture says, that raises me to walk in a newness of life, so that I am a new creation in Christ, Old things have gone, new things have come. That's what we are celebrating this morning. And it's important as we think through this is that we recognize every single one of us that none of us deserve what I just described. We don't deserve it. And and Paul makes that clear. Look at verse thirteen. Back in Colossians chapter two, verse thirteen. He says, and when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. I hope you see as I do when I read this passage, it, it, it's clear to me that we don't choose God. God chooses to love us. And then we respond to that love in faith. We are dead and dead people don't move. But Christ moved first. And in His love, He invites us into a relationship with Him. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 is a passage that we've looked at. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read it to you. It says, But God, because of His great love with which He loved us, even though we were dead in our transgressions and sins, He made us alive together with Christ." By grace, you have been saved through faith. God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us. And He demonstrated it on the cross. And then when we see that image, whether it's baptism, whether it's communion, whether it's a testimony, whether we hear it from the words of Scripture, every single time there is an invitation to follow Him in faith so that old things have gone and new things have come. And it's that response of faith that ushers in the forgiveness of sins. And I want you to notice, He says in verse 13, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Don't miss that. All means all. Past, present, and future. That's why Paul can write in in Romans chapter 8, Therefore, now there is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The only way Paul can make that statement is if what he says in verse 13 is true, that all our sins are forgiven. Therefore, there is no condemnation. And we need to understand the significance of this because we had a debt, a debt that we couldn't pay. Look at verse 14 having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, we're in election year, and there's a lot of debates and discussions about our economy. This is not a political statement, by the way. It's an illustration. But one of the things that you hear about our economy are just some of the statements of fact of of how much in debt we are. Our U.S. debt, I think, at the last count, was $16 trillion. I mean, that figure doesn't even register in my brain. Okay? $16 trillion. In this year alone, we added another $1.1 trillion to our U.S. national debt. So with our current spending patterns, every day we live, we are adding more and more debt. It is a true crisis. But I want you to know, as you try to picture and fathom the significance of that overwhelming national debt, that you and I had the same debt that should feel equally as overwhelming in our debt to sin. We were born in a debt to sin. And every single day we lived, we added to our debt. And it was beyond what we could possibly ever Get out of. And Paul says that the the decrees, he's speaking of the law, was hostile to us. The reason he says that is because his perfect law is what reveals our imperfect lives. And when we see how indebted we are to him and where we are and our inability to get there, it is hopeless. It's hopeless. There is nothing we can do. But listen to what Jesus did. He says that I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus is the one who stands innocent before the law. You and I stand condemned. And only an innocent man can set a guilty man free. There is no possible way for another guilty man to say to his fellow guilty man, let me take your problems, because they're both criminals. It doesn't make any sense. Only an innocent man can set a guilty man free. There's a true story that uh, Swindoll tells about a young man he calls Aaron. Aaron uh, wanted to go into ministry and had gone to seminary and uh, had prepared for that uh, desire that he had in his heart. But as he began to look for an opportunity to serve somewhere, he came up empty-handed. There just wasn't anything that seemed to fit what his heart desired. And he began to get a little frustrated and, over time, desperate because he needed money and he didn't have a job. So in that desperation, he decided to to take on a job as a bus driver on the south side of Chicago. I don't know if you know anything about the south side of Chicago. Roger probably knows about the south side of Chicago, but you don't roam around the south side of Chicago. It's a dangerous place, especially for a rookie bus driver who'd never done anything like that before. But he needed the money, so that's what he decided to do. So he's driving the bus in the south side of Chicago, and sure enough, there were a group of gang members who routinely came on the bus, routinely gave him grief, and routinely refused to pay the fare. Every single time. Over time, you can imagine, he got frustrated because the other people were paying, the gang members weren't, but he couldn't do anything about it. So finally, one day, he was driving up to one of the stops and realized that there was a police officer there. So he stops the bus, gets out, explains to the police officer what had gone on. Officer comes onto the bus and says, Men, come forward. He says, I want you to pay every single one of those fares that you owe. And they did. They paid the fare that they owed. They went back and sat down on the bus. Police officer gets off the bus. He drives around the corner and they beat the living daylights out of him. He was a bloody mess. Went to the hospital, eventually got home, and he was so discouraged he began to ask, God, what are you doing? It was my desire to serve you, and this is not what I had planned. And he became angry about what had happened, and so he decided, I'm going to press charges. And so he did. He went to the officer and explained what he wanted to do. The officer was willing to testify along with a few other people. Those young men were identified. They were put in jail, and they had a court hearing with the judge. Aaron walked in with his attorney, and those gang members walked in. And they were mad. But Aaron looked over and instead of being angry, he was, he was sad. Because the last thing they needed is more hate in their life. They needed some help. But what was he going to do now? That train was running. There was already a, a plea of guilty. And so Aaron stood up and said, Judge, in due respect, would it be possible? for you to combine the sentences that these young men owe and give it to me. (laughs) As you can imagine, they fell silent, including those gang members. The judge says, young man, I'm sorry, you're actually out of order and that's never been done before. And Aaron said, sir, I beg to differ, it has. It has. Because Jesus Christ paid his debt of sin that every one of us has owed. We are guilty. He is innocent. And he did for us what I'm asking to do for them. That's why I'm asking it. We are forgiven in Christ, and I want to forgive them. Well, everyone was moved by what he had to say, as you might expect. But the judge, we know this is a true story because he said, I can't do that. I, I can't do that. But what began to happen next is that those young men were so moved by that gesture that they allowed Aaron to come see them while they were in jail almost every single day. And during that time, most every one of those gang members gave their life to Jesus Christ. And you know what else? That was the beginning of Aaron's ministry to the south side of Chicago where he ministers to troubled youth. All because he explained to them how an innocent Savior paid the price for a guilty sinner like you and I. Our daily choices have only increased our debts, but Jesus substituted his innocence for our guilt. His victory becomes our victory as we are set apart from sin's enslaving power. Jesus. Is complete, lacking in nothing. What he has accomplished, he has credited to you and I through faith. We didn't do a thing. He did it all. And then he invites us to respond to him in faith. The question is, what difference does that make to you? There's a passage back in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, that says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves to the one whom you obey? Either sin resulting in death, or obedience resulting in righteousness. See, your inheritance of God's provision does not apply when your heart is not surrendered to Christ. And Paul said earlier in the chapter that that we were formerly alienated and hostile in mind to God. And the reason is is because we refuse to bow to the authority that He has in our life. And only when we surrender ourselves before Him do we allow His reign in our life for the forgiveness of our sins and sin's enslaving power. I don't know where everybody is this morning. But I would hope that if you see nothing else, whether it's what I say, what we saying or what you will hear in just a few minutes, that Christ's love is deep and that He has made, He has demonstrated that love for you and that while you and I were yet sinners, He died for you and that you might perhaps respond to Him in faith so that what He accomplished is then credited to you. A miraculous transaction, to say the least. But to my brothers and sisters in Christ, you have been set free. And if Christ has set you free, you are free indeed. And my question to you is, what have you done with that freedom? I enjoy sitting down with those who desire to be baptized to hear a little bit of their story. And oftentimes there are people that I haven't had a chance to spend a lot of time with and get to know. And one of those people that you'll meet this morning, I think she's first, is a lady by the name of Amy Knight. And I appreciated Amy's story of faith and her trust in Christ. As we talked about baptism and the tradition that she grew up in was different than what we saw in Scripture. And she told me in her words "Where I believe this is what God has called me to do. I want to take this step of faith and obedience to Him. That's the right answer. That's the right answer. And that's the answer that is given when we understand that Christ has set us free. From sin's enslaving power, and what that means is, is that now we have the ability to walk in obedience. So the question is, what is God asking you to do, and are you willing to follow Him in obedience? How are you using your freedom? We have the freedom to find hope in Him, but yet we have all kinds of options in our world, don't we? We can have fo- we can have hope in our career, we can have. Hope in our financial stability. We can have hope in relationships. We can have hope in in education. There's a lot of things that we can place our hope in. But let me remind you of the passage that we read earlier in Colossians when Paul said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's your hope. And so that's what allows us to, to not be concerned about what the future holds because we understand who holds the future. We look back on what Christ has accomplished in our past and we believe because of what He's done for us up to this point that He will continue to care for us moving forward regardless of what we might encounter. We entrust ourselves to Him, daily surrendering our lives, allowing that rule and reign that He rightly deserves to be glorified in our life so that what has happened on the inside is seen forth on the outside. And that's what you're going to see this morning. So let me pray for our time and I'm going to ask Justin to come and do our offering as we get ready. So when I'm finished praying, if you're being baptized this morning, let's just head to the back and we'll get started. So let me pray for us. God, thanks so much for the privilege to see the redemptive work of what you accomplished. Help us to understand that this is all you. You did it all. And then you credit what you did to us through faith. So, Father, as we see that image that you instituted for us to follow in baptism this morning, may we be reminded of the the crucifixion of our old self that is put to death, laid in the tomb, buried, and then raised to new life as a new creation in Christ so that his righteousness is credited to our lives so that we have peace with God. May we see that clearly this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen.